With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So, Mitch, Mitch Lowe, thanks for coming on to the James Altucher Show. Thanks, James. Nice to be here. Now, Mitch... Every website, biography, interview with you says you're the co-founder of Netflix. You're also the founder of Redbox, and you're the current CEO of Quarterly, which is a site I want to talk about. Um, but let me ask you first about Netflix. Can I, is that okay? Okay. Absolutely. Now, when I think of Netflix, I think of Reed Hastings. I, I have never heard of you in the context of Netflix. <laughs> well, you probably haven't heard of a lot of, uh, you know, the key people that uh, really started Netflix. Um, a guy named Mark Randolph, who I really credit as the true uh, founder and creator, uh, was a guy who worked for Reed uh, as his uh, VP of corporate marketing at a company called uh, Pure Atria that Reed uh, had sold in um, 1998 to Rational Software. Okay, and so so tell me how Netflix got started, because obviously it's one of the sure. best companies on the planet now. <laughs> it is, and uh, you know we you know created an amazing culture there that uh, continues to to be be uh, a strong company. So the way it started is um, in 1998, uh, a company that uh, Reed owned called Pure Atria was sold. Uh, in July of that year to Rational Software, a much bigger uh, software company. Yeah, and they got, and bought, they got the, bought eventually by IBM. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and um, uh, Mark Randolph, who was Reed's uh, corporate VP of marketing, had just seen that DVD had, the first titles of DVD had come out in March of that year. And he had this idea where he thought, well, geez, the Unlike VHS, you know, DVDs weigh under an ounce. Uh, therefore, they could be put in a first class, uh, with, you know, mailed with a first class uh, postage stamp. Uh, and uh, they were affordable, whereas, you know, VHS, uh, the average wholesale price was about $72. And so we had this idea of doing a by mail business. This wasn't a subscription business. This was what he really wanted to do was be the Amazon of DVD, both in rental and sales. And I was, uh, meanwhile, I was the uh, chairman of the what was called the BSDA at the time. It was 
uh, the Video Software Dealers Association. So it was all the video stores around the country, Blockbuster, Hollywood, all the independents. And I also had a little company uh, where I was building websites, <clears throat> excuse me, for video stores that would allow them on a subscription basis to sell movies online, uh, distribute an email newsletter, uh, and Mark attended a trade show in July of 98 where he and I met, and he, um, he shows up at my booth with this backpack and is wearing sandals and kept asking me all these questions about DVD, and I could tell he had some interesting idea, but he wouldn't tell me what it was exactly, and I even remember him about ready to walk away without giving me his name, and I remember grabbing the back of his backpack and pulling him back and saying, wait a minute, you know, uh, we should talk some more. Oh my so God, so if, if you hadn't like pulled on his backpack, there might not be a Netflix? Well, there, I think there still would have been a Netflix, but you know, it wouldn't, you know, I mean, I'd like to think it wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been the same. It, well, they, there might not have been a house of cards, for instance. <laughs> That's possible. Well, you know, uh, you know, Ted Sarandos was my distributor rep for the chain of video stores I owned. And in, um, I can't remember the year, but when Reed wanted me to move to Los Angeles to run content, I had just had dinner with with uh, Ted a couple days before at the Video Hall of Fame dinner, and my wife and I decided that we weren't going to move to Los Angeles, so I, I remember talking Ted into taking the job. I remember sitting in a car in the heat for 45 minutes trying to convince Ted that the internet was here to stay, and uh, he finally joined and ran content. But uh, yeah, so Mark and I started meeting on a weekly basis at a place called Buck's Cafe in Woodside, uh, which you know had all kinds of you know positive you know experiences in. That's where uh, Jeffrey Yang came up with Yahoo, and you know a few other cool things happened there. And then one day he brought in Reed. Uh, who had agreed to fund his idea to build uh, a company that would rent and sell uh, movies. And what, weren't you guys was, worried? And I'm sorry to interrupt, but weren't you guys worried that, well, if Amazon's selling books, it's just easy for them to sell DVDs, which which they did end up doing? Yeah, we, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we at the time we were more worried about Walmart, but we were in general worried about anybody who could sell below cost. Uh, and, you know, we, we always saw that, you know, rental, we were a la carte rental. You could rent for $4.99 for one week rental plus 99 cents shipping and handling. And we sold movies essentially at cost. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, we were worried about it, but we saw the sales of DVDs more as a customer acquisition uh, vehicle than making money at it. I see. So, so renting was like the main source of profit. Yeah, yeah. Renting was was where it was at, and you know, of course, you know, our our office, which was in Scotts Valley, California, near Santa Cruz, uh, was filled with all kinds of test gadgets, trying to see just how how much you could bend a DVD disc before it snapped, uh, because we knew it would go through all these rollers 
uh, in the U.S. mail uh, uh, distribution. Now, I, I remember at the time, or maybe this was a little bit afterwards, I was thinking about Netflix, and I was thinking to myself, you know, it's just easy for me to go over to the video store, which now rents out DVDs. Why, If I want to yep. see a movie, I want to see it today. I don't want to wait in the mail. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly that, that two- or three-day delay had a huge negative impact in the early days on the business um, because you might be in the mood for a comedy when you ordered the film, uh, but two, three days later, you might be in the mood for a drama. And, you know, in those days, we, would, we saw a huge difference in retention and, you know, the percentage of households, DVD households that uh, were customers based on how long it took uh, to get the movie. You know, ar- around our San Jose warehouse, you know, all, ar- all around the southern bay of San Francisco, we had huge, ret- you know, perfect retention numbers. And, and I think we had at one time 5% of all BBD households where it was less than a percent, you know, anywhere else. So, yeah, that delay was, was huge. But, you know, we, we always knew that we were going to uh, migrate onto digital. You know, the, I mean, you know, we could have called the company Movies by Mail, uh, but, you know, at the very beginning we called it Netflix because we knew that, you know, we didn't know whether it would be downloading or streaming at the time, but we always knew that we would go to some form of digital delivery. Well, and, and I want to ask about that, but first I want to ask, how did you get your initial, how did you market yourself? How did you get your initial customers? How did people, how did you educate people that this was a market? It's, uh, we did it in a couple ways, and it's, um, it, it was really fun. Um, the first and most impactful way was we went to um, all the DVD manufacturers, you know, Sony, Toshiba, Matsushita, et cetera, and we said, listen, you're trying to, your people are trying to sell these DVD players, and at the time, consumers are going, wait a minute, all I see is VHS everywhere, and, and most of the video stores have a small selection of DVD. You know, it wasn't really until 2000, you know, the year 2000, before video stores really started, you know, having a wide selection. So we said, no matter where a customer buys your DVD player, no matter where they live, um, you know, if they, if they join Netflix, they can get every single title available. And that will give the salespeople, you know, in Best Buys and other places who are selling your product, uh, the, you know, kind of here's what you're going to feed into this thing and here's, here's where you get it. And, and those partnerships, what we did is we would give them eight free rental coupons, 10 free rental coupons to put inside uh, the player boxes. So we ended up having an offer in about 95% of all the DVD players sold in the country inside the box. So right as you open the box, there was our big license plate size coupon. And so uh, ultimately so, that evolved into a free trial. Uh, but originally it started out as a la carte rental. So no, um, no DVD player company wanted an exclusive with you. Like they were all happy to talk to you. They did. They did. And, you know, we encountered the same problem at Redbox. Uh, but, you know, we made the argument that uh, all ships rise, you know, when you have this access- accessibility. Um, so, you know, some, 
you know, Sony wanted the best deal. So Sony got 10 free rentals while everybody else got eight. But that was only because they dom- had a dominant market share. So uh, it's, it's very interesting. DVD. Like every company has its own unique way to market their product. Like people always say, how can I market my product? But you really have to be clever and figure out the subtleties of your industry and then come up with the exact way. But it usually involves some sort of giveaway. Yeah. Yeah, give us some good. So the other big things we did, um, you know, with our, we, we, we we're always trying crazy things. One of the craziest things we did was uh, back in uh, 1999, um, making DVD was not easy. The connection technology was different from players. And months and have a uh, master that you could get DVD out of it. And um, somebody came to us, uh, and they had developed software where they claimed they could turn content into a DVD in 24 hours. And so when the Clinton um, interrogation by the Senate, his, um, his uh, Senate hearing uh, was broadcast and was public domain, we put out a big press release uh, where we got a full page in the Wall Street Journal where we said, you know, give us your two cents and we'll send you a DVD with uh, the entire, uh, in, you know, uh, Senate interrogation on it, all with chapter stops. So you could even go straight to, you know, uh, his his answers on specific topics. That's great. And we, we turned that around and we ended up selling 20,000 copies of that for two cents a piece. And it really got our name, you know, out there that uh, now, you know, a couple of those discs had porn on them accidentally. Uh, we never got those back from the customers. But, um, you know, it was a, you know, those were different kind of fun, different ways uh, to get the word out about who we are. Wait, wait, let me try to understand this. Some had porn on them accidentally. <laughs> so what happened? You know, because we were trying to do this quick. In fact, I don't think I slept for 48 hours. We took the master uh, to a, um, a, a reproduction house in uh, in the South Bay of San Francisco. And uh, this company also uh, made uh, discs of pornography. And they accidentally mixed in when we went to pick up our are from that we were doing every couple hours, picking them up, sending, shipping them out, coming back, picking up more. Uh, there accidentally got to be a batch of discs that uh, weren't ours in the batch that we sent out to customers. And and no one was fired over this. <laughs> uh, you know, we got some some bad publicity out of it, but. Uh, you know, we asked, we sent a, uh, a request to all those customers to send them back, and we'd replace it with the right disc, and no one ever sent it back to us. So it kind of just blew over. Maybe everyone thought, oh, I asked for the Clinton proceedings. Maybe this is the accurate Clinton proceedings. <laughs> Maybe this right. is not it's a mistake. Like, that's right. It's, and I think that's common, you know, to take names of movies and slightly change them for adult content. Right. So, 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 but Netflix though continued mailing to DVDs to people until really just a few years ago, and I never could really understand it. Yeah, well, it still does. It's still, I mean, the the funny 
thing is that the, the you know they they spun it out to an independent uh, entity called Quickster, um, but that's still in operation and still does uh, quite well. There's still you know if you look at the household makeup of uh, the United States, they really fall into two big segments. One segment, which is kind of the Netflix customer that really is willing to pay to get the right content at the right time on the right device. And another, you know, segment, which is more the Redbox customer and more now the, the Quickster or the Movies by Mail, where it's more about uh, filling time at the most affordable uh, price, and um, and those those customers are still you know a good half of uh, the households in the U.S. So DVD continues to be strong. So so when did Netflix go public? Like when did you start to see for yourself personally financial benefit yeah. from from Netflix? Well, we first um, were going public. Uh, we had Deutsche Bank bringing us public in, of all times, April of 01. And, uh, of course, you know, the market, the dot-com bubble burst, and we pulled that. And we went public in May of 02, um, you know, uh, for re- you know at $15 a share uh, pre-split. So it split since then, uh, but we came out at $15 a share in May of uh, 2002. And then at that point, did you suddenly make like a massive amount of money? Was this like great for you? Did you have a party? Um, well, you know, we had, I didn't, I mean, we had a party. We had, uh, we rented a boat on the bay and all went out. But, um, you know, many of us had seen a lot of our friends get paper rich during the dot-com bubble and then watch them lose it all. And so, you know, I'd say, I mean, and one of the reasons why Netflix was able to go public, you know, uh, just a year after the bubble burst was that we were all pretty kind of grounded, you know, kind of even go, even people where, you know, we weren't going to, we weren't in it to make lots of money. That was, it was really nice and we all made lots of money, but, you know, we were pretty grounded. So. It wasn't, it was probably another year. You know, I left in uh, January of 03 and I went back to visit um, sometime in late 03. And I think it was only then that you could see the parking lot, you know, start to change from old Volvos and, you know, old uh, VWs to uh, brand new cars. Huh. Well, um, you know, again, I remember this was about maybe six or seven years ago. Some short, mm-hmm. se- some short selling hedge fund called me and made this super persuasive argument why Netflix was a short. And it was precisely at that uh-huh. point, I think Netflix kind of multiplied by four in stock price. Like Netflix just kept going, but nobody believed yeah. the model, and and Netflix proved them wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, read you know, is one of the most amazing uh, leaders. Um, you know, he and I shared a cube together for a couple years, and I learned more um, than I think I could ever have learned from any kind of MBA program or any any type of education I could have ever gotten. Uh, what, 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 he is, what are three things you think you learned from him? 
number one was focus. Um, no matter how many things you think you can do and how many things look attractive, find that one thing you know you can be absolutely the best on it and force yourself to drop all the others. And that's hard. That is really hard. It, you know, at one point uh, early on, this is like in, in, in 2001, we were already, um, we had built a sales department that was selling the space on the envelope, um, you know, for advertising. Yeah. And these salesmen had signed up all these deals. And one time, um, the, because the, um, the uh, buyer did not approve the artwork and we had to go back into print, it delayed the envelope such that a mailing to customers was delayed. And Reed shut down the entire department and said, listen, if we can't deliver movies on time all the time, then I don't want to have it. I don't care if we can make $20, $30 million from it. It's not our core business. And um, that was an amazing lesson uh, for me. I still find myself, uh, you know, find it very difficult to turn down opportunities and uh, Reed, Reed is a master at that, is getting people focused on that one thing you can do really, really well. It's interesting because um, I, I had a podcast recently that I did with Peter Thiel, and he said mm -hmm. uh, the, the one thing he learned at PayPal is give everything their one thing to do. Like nobody should be in uh -huh. charge of two things. So it's a similar type of uh, idea. It is. It is. And it's, and it's, it runs um, counter to, you know, lots of, you know, other theories about, you know, keeping work interesting, you know, such that you don't feel like uh, a automaton, you know, just kind of taking a widget and moving it to the right. Um, but it really does work. Um, so that was one thing. That was the, the first one. The second one was how you use, he taught me how you use analytics uh, to make decisions. I always thought that you needed a clear answer before you made it made a decision. And the thing that he taught me was you've got to use analytics directionally uh, as opposed to and, and never worry whether they are a hundred percent sure. Just try to get them to point you in the right direction. Uh, and so he just taught me a whole different way of using uh, the numbers and the analysis of, of well, performance. Like, what's an example uh, of that? Uh, you know, an example might be that we had, uh, at the time, uh, we couldn't figure out what our core demographic was of our users. And so we would spend bunches of time surveying our customers, trying to figure out, you know, do they fit into the 18 to 24-year-old group? And, 24 to 35, et cetera. And, you know, the numbers were all over the place. But if you averaged them all out, it was clear that our customer was higher income, older, and more educated. But, you know, it wasn't, but there were still big segments of younger people. And he said, listen, you know, just go with where this is telling you directionally our customers are. And it really paid off. You know, when when we started targeting uh, places where those customers, you know, with that demographic hung out, um, you know, and this kind of got to our annoying pop-up ads that we used to 
inundate the web with, um, then, you know, our customer acquisition just, you know, went straight up. So, so you started targeting just that group and that's how you cheaply yeah. got customers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that kind of, that kind of led to the third thing, which is kind of, uh, you know, he, he always said, you know, we would always try to, um, make everything improve. Like, you know, we've tried to raise, um, you know, all segments of our, of our company or our revenue from all different customer segments. And he would say, he would say to us, you know, instead of trying to make the bad ones better, um, just take the ones that are already doing good and pour a lot more money into making them great. And so, uh, and that turned out to be a really kind of smart way to go because well, we ended, you know, and it had it, the same thing was true with movies, with customers, with you know, different, you know, with people. You know, he he always believed that you've got to cut people who are uh, medium to poor performers. You know, you know, cut them out of the organization and put more money into the ones that are overperforming. Um, and same thing with movies, buy more copies of the hit movies rather than try to get more people to rent the slow movie movie. So this is kind of, this is kind of like the 80-20 rule, that like 20% of your employees will do 80% of the work, 20% of your customers result in 80% of the profits, and so on. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. And it worked. So, so why did you decide to leave the company? <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I, I ask myself that uh, a lot. Um, you know, back in uh, '02 when we went public, I was running a, you know, my, my role was I was VP of business development and strategic alliances. So, you know, I was working with companies like Best Buy and the manufacturers and so on, the DVD manufacturers as ways to drive uh, subscribers. But I also had a stealth project, uh, which was called Netflix Express, which I don't think there's been much written about it. But Netflix Express was designed to shorten that amount of time that it took to get a, a DVD disc to a consumer. You know, remember, at this point, we were opening little mini warehouses all over the place uh, to kind of get to that one-day ship. Uh, for most of the country. And we had one other thing uh, that we were doing, which it, it was a vending machine that we would put in grocery stores and other places where you could pick up your movies, you could become a new subscriber, you could drop off your movies and immediately exchange them for ones that were in stock at the grocery store. And so I set up this uh, project in Las Vegas, in which was a great test market, and it just was going crazy. I mean, in, in the first couple of weeks, we signed up like 900 new customers at this one grocery location. And it was phenomenal. But uh, Reed, after, you know, a month or so of this really doing well, uh, Reed um, came to me and said, hey, listen, uh, the board wants you to shut that down. And his reasoning was that, the, if the investment community, you know, by the way, our stock over those couple months, this is around uh, November of 2002, 
remember we had gone public in May, our stock had dropped from $15 down to $9 uh, during that time. And Reed told me that if the investment community heard that we were opening these physical locations, uh, which were really these automated uh, vending machine locations, he thought that the investment community uh, would would uh, penalize us and um, and our stock would even drop further. And so he asked me to shut it down. And, you know, my, I don't know if I, I haven't told you my background. Back in the early 80s, I had developed a vending machine uh, business for VHS that failed miserably. And I always saw this as a way to kind of resurrect this failed idea of the past. Uh, and it hurt me so much to have to shut this down that I started looking elsewhere. And at this time, uh, the guys at McDonald's came out and asked me if I would help them uh, open a DVD vending business uh, because their business, um, their traffic at the McDonald's uh, uh, restaurants had been dropping. And they thought if they rented movies, they might be able to increase traffic because you have to return the movie, not only rent it. So it adds this incremental visit. And so they essentially uh, lured me away. Um, you know, I, I uh, in February, I went to consult with McDonald's and then I became a, an employee in May. Uh, meanwhile, after I left uh, Netflix, Reed had asked me, uh, to go to England and Germany and Japan as a consultant um, to <clears throat> help explore expanding Netflix in those countries. Uh, but by the time I finished that project in uh, April, uh, I was free to join McDonald's as an employee, which I did. Uh, wow, you went them build their venue. You went from Netflix to being an employee of McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. That's probably the um, strangest trick. Like John Scully went from Pepsi to Apple, and you went like the exact opposite direction. Yeah, well, I had made the argument to Reed that we should, that Netflix, that we should run McDonald's uh, business. We should run their, their vending business to rent movies. Um, and he said, I don't want anything to do with McDonald's. And uh, even though I'm not a, you know, McDonald's uh, eater either, um, I just thought it, you know, I guess I was, I was still trying to vindicate my failure of the 80s uh, with vending machines, which was called the video droid. Uh, I was still trying to vindicate that. So, you know, emotions can, can take a big role in decision making. Sure, sure. You know, let me ask you a quick question. What was the most popular movie rented while you were there at Netflix? Well, uh, you know, our first, our, you know, boy, the, uh, I don't think I, I, I know the answer. I definitely can tell you the first two titles that we bought lots of copies of, which was um, L.A. Confidential and Boogie Nights. Huh, uh, we funny. bought two, 248 copies of each one of those. And, um, you know, they were our most, and in fact, Warner Brothers uh, gave us $20,000 to put a full page ad in the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, promoting it. So those were our first two big titles. So so this is all very interesting. And I, I want to actually get into your, your current stuff, because I think with your current business, it actually enables people 
to build their own businesses, which is what I'm very excited about. But I want to ask one more thing about Netflix. Like, it seems like Netflix has quite successfully gone in the direction of HBO, Showtime, and other companies that aggregated movies um, but then turned into original programming. And Netflix was sort of the yeah. first digital-only company that created amazingly successful original programming. And I don't know if you keep up with the, the management there or anything, but this must have been a huge kind of management shift in decision-making to go into original programming and actually produce shows. Yeah, well, you know, um, Reed has always wanted, uh, you know, his dream has always been to be, you know, a studio, like to run a studio. Uh, I did not know that. Ted, and, and Ted is probably the most knowledgeable content guy out there. I mean, there's no one I know who, like Ted, who you can talk about a film and he'll know everything about, you know, any, almost any obscure piece of content. Um, so they definitely have the right, you know, both passion for it and the knowledge of it. But the most important part, and this is, a, I'm finding it is a fascinating uh, trend where the Netflix not only um, and knows what people like, but more importantly, it knows how to promote what they have. So, you know, they have both sides of the equation to make a, a piece of content more successful and have a higher hit rate than, let's say, HBO did in its early days. Um, you know, it wasn't until, like, Sopranos and Six Feet Under and so on that, that HBO started getting a kind of a run of hits, whereas, you know, Netflix has had a higher, uh, much higher percentage of successes. And it's partially due to knowing what people want, but it's even more driven by the ability to promote those titles to the right people, to the relevant people. I, I think that's and true, so I, but, but, but also to be fair, I think um, House of Cards was sort of A-B tested in some sense in that it was successful already in the UK, like the earlier version. And then I think, yeah, if, if, if I'm not mistaken, the, the producer of, um, of House of Cards or one of the writers uh, produced many HBO shows in the past, and I could be wrong. I, I forget the name completely. Um, yeah, no, I, you're, you're, you're right, but, you know, the, what's driving them to do this is actually a, an overall uh, content cost reduction. You know, what they've, you know, our original concept was that anything you wanted except for adult movies you could find at Netflix. You know, we were going to have at least some of everything. And what they found is that whole long tail concept is interesting, but it really doesn't uh, give an ROI, especially if you're having to have minimum guarantees uh, as they are now with digital. So, so ex and, and what makes people not quit your service is the idea that in, in, even if there's nothing to watch now, in three months there's going to be another series that's going to come out that you're going to love. And so, you know, everything Netflix does is about reducing churn. And what they found is that more, more importantly than having lots and lots of obscure titles licensed, it's more important to have this exclusive content 
uh, that you know you want and you know you're not going to quit because you can't get it elsewhere. So ultimately, create, and I think this is a valuable lesson to entrepreneurs, creating your own content is really critical, like whatever business yeah. you're in. It is. You've got, it's the only way you're not, you know, subject to the whims or, you know, what the, you know, and this was a big problem at, at, at Redbox where, you know, I had to sue three studios. I was, I was subject to them what, deciding whether or not they wanted us to survive. And, um, you know, we found a way around it, but you need to have your own content, your own, own creativity. Right. Like, like ultimately, in, no matter what industry you're in, there's going to be gatekeepers, and you have to always constantly figure out ways to get around the gatekeepers. Yeah, especially if you're going to disrupt the market in some fashion, you're going to create some enemies you know, that want to uh, stop you, and, and it's going to make that even more critical. So let's talk about Quarterly.co, where you're the current CEO. I think this is a great company. I lo- so I'm going to just describe it for a second. You could cr- you could correct me if I'm wrong. Let's. I have a, a pretty big platform. Like I have a nice number of Twitter followers. I have a big email list. A, a lot of uh, very friendly, and I'm grateful for the people who listen to to this podcast. I would like to. Re- I would like to give back. I would like to say here are my ten favorite books that I read this quarter. I want to email it to everyone who's essentially paid me some sort of subscription fee that covers my costs and, and shipping and maybe a little extra. I want to give you all my favorite books. You guys kind of quarterly provides all of the infrastructure for me doing that. And I can create an entire business that could create income and maybe even wealth for me by using the quarterly infrastructure. Yeah, no, that's exactly exactly it it's there's there's um really two components of it one is there is a lot of fascinating people out there that have really interesting ideas about what's cool and what things you should you know toys you should play with what what books you should read uh, that no one knows about and and in fact what attracted to me me to them originally was I was looking at their early curators, and I didn't know who any of them were, but when I read about them, I go, man, you know, this guy or this woman is doing something really fascinating. And so one aspect of it is to, you know, create a forum and a platform to find interesting people you may not know about. And the second part is exactly as you've described, it is it is it provides a way, kind of the you know, the, the kind of the under the covers difficulties of, of having your own distribution network, you know, creating that infrastructure where it's really just plug and play. If you want boxes shipped that are of this size with this many things in it, uh, quarterly has that all done for you. So like I basically uh, can give you a list of names and addresses and, and all the things I want in the box and you put it all together and take care of all the logistics and shipping and all of that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I, really, take a, I really like some I'm of the sorry. creative uses also. Like, I like how Farrell Williams, you know, the kind of uh, hip-hop R&B artist, in his box, it was just his favorite book, The Alchemist, but with his personal annotations on each book. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. That's priceless. If you're a Pharrell fan... 
you know, you actually feel like you're getting his own personal copy loaned to you uh, to be able to look at to see what what is it that you know attracted him uh, to the book and what are the passages in the book that he found interesting because it's you know it's handwritten post-it notes with his words on it pointing to a phrase in the book and then we've reproduced those post-it notes so they look like the original ones that he put in the book and of course they're put exactly where he had them uh, in the book it's really really a cool thing so there's sort of an arbitrage there where that is not so expensive even though maybe the subscription to him costs a lot more than the copy of The Alchemist, but there's an arbitrage because people want to know what Farrell's annotations were. Exactly, and, it's, and it kind of bridges the physical and digital, you know, uh, divide where, you know, you can listen to his music, you can hear him, see him on TV, but to actually touch and feel something that, he believes is important and interesting, like a physical book, um, you know, that you have to actually ship. Uh, you can't, you know, send that through bits and bytes. There's something kind of primal about that, too. It reminds me of, like, going to sleepaway camp and getting a care package from my parents. Like, it's something I can <laughs> exactly. look forward to and I could love it and enjoy it and makes me feel nostalgic and, and whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, the founder, you know, Zach Prechette, who's the founder of Quarterly, and and by the way, um, just one little correction, um, I'm still a, a, a big shareholder of Quarterly, but I've stepped down as uh, as the president, uh, and the founder, Zach, uh, uh, runs it and is just an amazing uh, leader of that company. Wait, let me ask, like, is this, uh, are we doing, playing in euphemisms here? Were you, like, fired or anything? <laughs> No, I wasn't fired. You know, my goal, I was, I was brought in by the, um, one of the investors and, uh, to, work, to work with Zach. And my goal was to help Zach through the initial phases where, you know, it's difficult uh, when it's the first time you're doing it, establishing priorities. And Zach is, you know, I mean, he, he's got this great vision. He's got a great sense of things. He just needed a partner to help him through the first couple of years and get the thing on its feet. And, and so a couple months ago, uh, about a month ago, month and a half ago, I, I felt that, uh, he had it all down. In fact, uh, I was more of a hindrance than, than help. So I offered to leave and, and, uh, left, but I, I'm still very involved and still very close to those guys, but day to day running of it, uh, Zach and Aaron are doing. Well, I, what I love about Quarterly is that someone could build an entire business on top of it. Like if my brand is strong enough, meaning not necessarily personally, but maybe my corporate brand, if people trust me enough to curate good quality items for them in a quarterly box, then I could charge mm -hmm. more than what those things are worth um, for quarterly to box it all up and so on. So there's a, there's a big profit yeah. in there. And do, yeah. you, do you know people who have built businesses on top of quarterly? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, there's, there's people like, um, uh, Tim, you know, even though Tim Ferriss is a, a well-known author, uh, he's essentially, you know, earning in the six figures, 
uh, his profit on his boxes uh, per year. And he's doing that in two ways. One is the the story that he tells by uh, by the items in the box are much more valuable than the kind of buying them piecemeal and putting them together. Um, and then second, um, he leverages, you know, his um, kind of tacit endorsement of the product with the vendor to get them at a much lower cost than, not much, but a lower cost than maybe wholesale might be. So, you know, he's he's definitely in the six-figure range as far as the profit he's making on an annual basis based on that. And I, I feel like a lot of people could start to do that. And again, there's there's an arbitrage. You need to have you need to have among your audience the trust that you know. There, there's two things that that the audience is paying for. One is they're paying for the items in the box, and the other thing is they're they're paying for the trust in you that you're going to pick the right items for them that they don't know about. And uh, right. so, and, right. and, but That's but right. at and the, the story you're telling. Right, the story you're telling, because again, Farrell didn't just put a copy of The Alchemist in his box, that would have been boring, but his personal annotations, that's interesting, even if he wasn't Farrell, but somebody else, that would still be interesting. Yep. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, this is this is a huge trend in the world, it's like, we're all out there these days building our own brand, you know, whether it's on LinkedIn or Facebook. Um, you know, if we're uh, for authors or business people, we're all building a brand, and this is a way to monetize that brand. It's not the only way, but it's a it's a, a way to physically connect with your fans so that they know more about you and and potentially can can buy other things from you. Potentially, you can get into kind of the information product space. So someone's going to say, "Okay, I'm willing to pay." Uh, you know, ten dollars a month for James's uh newsletter, special reports, uh, his favorite, you know, Kindles or whatever. Like you, you don't do, you don't really do the digital thing so much, but you could do that. Yeah, and there's, you know, from time to time, like Pharrell is really into um, uh, luminosity, and so he'll put. Uh, from time to time, a, a gift card for Luminosity, a free uh, subscription for Luminosity on a digital card in in the package. What but is yeah, Luminosity? It's you know it's the brain game you know thing online where uh. you know they say you've got to exercise your brain and so it's kind of tests and things um, to help make you smarter. Um, but uh, what we find to be the most successful are where you. You have in the package things that couldn't be transmitted digitally because almost all of our curators have big fan bases that, you know, subscribe to their blogs or, or, or follow them in some other way. But, you know, this, what you really got to do is take advantage of being able to, you know, ship a physical object that represents something that's really important to you that you're, followers and the people who are interested in what you've got to say uh, that they'll find interesting. Yeah, I, I really love the model. I mean, as soon as I heard it, I said to myself two things. Wow, that's a great business. And B, I really want to send a box every quarter to people who want it from me. Like I, I, I started thinking of all sorts of things I could put in 
my box, my quarterly box. Yeah, and that's what it takes. It takes, it takes you know, someone like yourself who has lots of ideas and, and lots of thoughts and creativity. Uh, people are going to love what you create. You can't be, we found that when we tried to go for big celebrities that, you know, might have their assistant or agent come up with what was in it, uh, the fans saw right through that. You know, they go, wait a minute, this is, this is just another commercial representation of this person. This isn't the true deep thinking of the person who I admire. And that's why, you know, the ones that work and that's why Pharrell is so good is because he actually spends time thinking about this himself, as does Nina Garcia, you know, as does Bill Nye, the science guy, and Andrew Zimmern, Bizarre Foods. They all put, the ones that work really put, put uh, creative thought into what, it. What, what, what did the Bizarre Foods guy put in his box? He'll come up with, you know, uh, like his favorite recipe for paella. And, but it won't even, won't just be the recipe. It'll be the ingredients. It'll be the special kitchen equipment you need to make it. Uh, and then some funny stories of, you know, how you do it and things that have happened to him and stuff, um, you know, while he's been doing it. But the key physical items are the actual ingredients, you know, things that, you know, he imports from Spain that you won't find at any store here. And, special utensils, things like that. What other boxes have you found to be pretty creative? Um, you know, Nina Garcia's box is always amazing. Um, she has all her friends who are designers. Um, so whether it's, uh, you know, sunglasses or, you know, jewelry or, you know, like accessories, there's all, you know, everything in there is like, you know, it's packed full of stuff that women just love. Uh, especially people who are into uh, the fashion, you know, the kind of what's hip in fashion. And what's another one? Um, there's, um, oh gosh, you're, you're catching me at a, at a, <laughs> at a dumb moment here. That's okay. I, I'm just, I, I'm fascinated I, by it. it. <laughs> I'd have to think about it, but there's, you know, everyone for us is like Christmas. Tim uh, Ferriss must have early. some good ones. Yeah, he, you know, he's got, um, you know, uh, water purifiers and, you know, the absolute, you know, absolute best way to make coffee with all the utensils from a hand grinder to um, counting how many seconds, you know, it is to, you know, for each component of making the coffee. Um, they're all different. Everyone is different. So, you know, I have nothing to do with Quarterly. I'm not an investor. I've never really spoken to anybody from Quarterly. I do plan on doing my own Quarterly box probably starting sometime in, in March or, or April. But what I do want to challenge my listeners, because there's no, it's not like you have to have a thousand subscribers. Just think of having like your family as subscribers. Like call up your friends and family Get ten subscribers and think of the box you want to put together. I don't. Do you have a minimum on number of subscribers? Uh, it's in the hundreds, like five hundred or so, is is the minimum. But uh, that's like for someone like yourself, that's quite easy. And by the way, these um, uh, packages are probably the best gifts I've ever given anyone because you know, you know, you never will find this, you know, in a store. Or, you know, no one's going to have already gotten this 
this gift before. They are absolutely the most creative and unique gifts. So, you know, you give one away, you give the second one away. You know, sometimes people take one item out and keep it and give the rest, rest away. But um, they're fantastic gifts. I should start a company quarterly squared. So I'm for $500 a quarter, I will send you the best items from every other quarterly box. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. I bet I bet people would love that. So so Mitch, I really appreciate you spending the time and coming on the show. I know we put this together really quickly, so I appreciate your time. Um what what's next for you? What's after quarterly? Well, I'm I'm uh, realizing that I'm still drawn back to the entertainment space. You know, in particular, I love the way uh, consumers pick uh, movies and TV shows. And, and so I'm just kind of exploring. I don't have anything specific, but I, I've realized that I want to get back into um, that business uh, again. So, uh, you know, I'm just trying to figure out exactly what that means, what, that, what to do. Okay, well, great. Well, thanks again, Mitch. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Mitch Lowe, co-founder of Netflix, former president of Quarterly, founder of Redbox. You've done so much stuff on the internet that we've all heard of. And I really appreciate you giving us your your lessons and experience. Thank you. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thanks, Mitch. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.